turn in your Bibles with me today to Joshua 7. Joshua chapter 7. This morning's theme will carry right into the evening service that begins at 6 o'clock. And I look forward to seeing you again tonight as we worship together. And our evening service will close with over 20 people being baptized in water. Isn't that a great thing to celebrate? So we'll look forward to that. Joshua 7, starting at verse 1. But Israel violated the instructions about the things set apart for the Lord. A man named Achan had stolen some of these dedicated things, so the Lord was very angry with the Israelites. Achan was the son of Carmi, a descendant of Zimri, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah. Joshua sent some of his men from Jericho to spy out the town of Ai, east of Bethel, near Beth-haven. When they returned, they told Joshua, There's no need for all of us to go up there. It won't take more than two or 3,000 men to attack Ai. Since they are so few of them, don't make all our people struggle to go up there. So approximately 3,000 warriors were sent, but they were soundly defeated. The men of Ai chased the Israelites from the town gate as far as the quarries, and they killed about 36 who were retreating down the slope. The Israelites were paralyzed with fear as this turn of events, at this turn of events, and their courage melted away. Joshua and the elders of Israel tore their clothes in dismay, threw dust on their heads, and bowed face down to the ground before the ark of the Lord until evening. Then Joshua cried out, O sovereign Lord, why did you bring us across the Jordan River if you are going to let the Amorites kill us? If only we had been content to stay on the other side. Lord, what can I say now that Israel has fled from its enemies. Let me pause there and just take you through this story, this important chapter. If you take Joshua and come up to this point, it has been a people moving forward. That has been our overarching theme as a church. That's our promise. It's become a picture. It's become a, a mantra that God is taking us to a new place. We are moving forward. In Joshua chapter 1, you see one of the great exchanges between God and a man as God announces to Joshua that his presence would be with him. Chapters 2 and 3, they cross the Jordan. And it's an amazing miracle that even at flood stage, the power of God was able to cause the people to go across on the dry ground. Then when you come from four, chapter 4 through 6, the people come up against this fortified wall. It's a massive wall around Jericho. If they are not able to take Jericho, they can't possess the land that God had promised. And through the most amazing of warfare tactics, the wall comes tumbling down. God's instruction, it was for his people to let out a great shout. It was as if worship caused the miracle to occur. And they took the city of Jericho, the Bible says, and they continued in their forward pursuit. Joshua chapter 1 through 6, the people are moving forward. Here again the first words of chapter 7, but Israel violated the instructions about the things set apart for the Lord. The story unfolds in chapter 7 that Achan 
One man had taken of the silver, gold, and a robe, things that had been used to sacrifice to idols, and he had buried it beneath the ground of his tent. In that action, he had violated covenant with God. He had been unfaithful to God. And suddenly, the forward progress of the people of God stopped. They lost the battle that was a sure victory, such a sure victory that the people even said, Hey, Joshua, you don't need to send all of us. Send the band of brothers. We will take them out quick. No doubt, we're resolute about this. And yet they lost the battle to Ai. And it says all of Israel, their hearts melted in fear. Their confidence was gone. And the reason was sin. One sin had stopped the forward progress of the people of God. I have preached many messages now since the first Sunday of February. Messages on felt needs. All messages that are important and necessary. But I want to balance a God of grace and a God who will look beyond our faults and see our needs. And make sure that we don't forget that he's also a God that takes sin seriously. I want to lay within the culture of our church a reminder of the seriousness and gravity of sin. I want you to know that I have not looked forward to getting you with this message. Even some people having heard this in the first service said, Pastor, I'm so glad you're preaching on that because all those people in the second service, they're the ones who really need it. This is not something that you enjoy preaching, but in order to be a representative of the full counsel of God, there is a need, there is a place, and it is appropriate for us to be reminded that sin is serious. And this entire chapter shows us the seriousness of sin. Let me walk in humility with this with you, and I want you to see the first statement, and it's this, we need a radically God-centered perspective of sin. And I think especially in the American church, that we need a radically God-centered perspective so that we would take sin as seriously as God does. Not walking scared of God, but knowing that there is still a place for an appropriate fear, which is a reverence of God, and that sin is an affront to God. One sin. One sin. Harms the entire people of God. That's what Joshua 7 teaches us. We see that... His unfaithfulness that violated the covenant. He, he had stolen the gold and the silver and the robe and had hidden it. Maybe today would be a day where we look beneath the surface of our own lives. And by the conviction of the Spirit, confess that maybe there's some hidden sin in our hearts. Sin that has an effect on others. That when I sin, it doesn't just affect me. 
but it affects other people. Let me rehearse with you that when Achan sinned, the presence of God was thrown into question among the people of God and watching nations. Joshua said, what will these other nations think? When Achan sinned, just one sin, it led to the only defeat of the people of God entering the promised land. One sin, only one sin, and 36 men died. When we sin, it affects other people. I, I want not just the weight of my words to settle in upon us. I want the Holy Spirit to take these words and, and press them in loving and convicting power upon the way we think. For if we change the way we think, we change the way we live. One sin harms the people of God one sin forfeits the blessing and presence of God. Now, with your Bibles open, let's do a comparison of what we find in Joshua 7 with what we find in chapters 1 through 6. Turning back to chapter 1, I want you to see with me what is spoken three times, starting at verse number 5. End of the verse says, Joshua, I will be with you as I was with Moses. I will not fail you or abandon you. Strong words making Joshua confident that God would be with him. Look with me now at verse number nine, end of the verse. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Now let's go to Joshua chapter three. Look at verse seven. The Lord told Joshua, today I will begin to make you a great leader in the eyes of all the Israelites. They will know that I am with you just as I was with Moses. Now let's go to Joshua chapter 5, starting at verse 13. When Joshua was near the town of Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with sword in hand. Joshua went up to him and demanded, Are you friend or foe? Neither one, he replied, I am the commander of the Lord's army. At this, Joshua fell with his face to the ground in reverence. I am at your command, Joshua said. What do you want your servant to do? The commander of the Lord's army replied, Take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy. Why was it holy? Because of the presence of God being there. The presence of God with Joshua. Now, finally, look at Joshua chapter 6, the last verse, verse 27. So the Lord was with Joshua, and his reputation spread throughout the land. Comparing all of those verses with Joshua chapter 7, verse 12, the end of the verse. I will not remain with you any longer unless you destroy the things among you that were set apart for destruction. I will not remain with you any longer unless you destroy those things that have violated the trust, the covenant, the commitment. What we're learning in Joshua 7 is that the presence of God is dependent upon the purity of God's people. In the New Testament, we are taught that once we are saved, we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. 
He doesn't come and go. However, there's a difference in being indwelt by the Spirit and walking in the fullness of the Spirit. And that measure of the Spirit, that fullness of the Spirit is dependent upon the purity of God's people. I believe there is a power of conviction, a power that would literally smite the heart of men, not in condemnation, but that which would lead them to cleansing. There is a power of God to deliver the addicted, to heal those who are sick, to bring the lost into salvation. I believe there is an unadulterated, a pure power of God that is missing within the American church because we have lost a purity that brings about the power, the pure power of the presence of an almighty God. When we disregard the holiness of God, we affect the presence of God operative within the people of God. One sin can destine us to defeat apart from the presence of God. One sin, one sin, one sin, one sin. Next statement brings dishonor on the glory of God. I'm not speaking of the worth of God. No matter what you or I do, we cannot diminish the worth of God. But we have a direct effect upon the reputation of God in the eyes of a watching world. Chapter 7. Turning our attention now to verse 9. I want you to notice the last sentence. It is a question. And then what will happen to the honor of your great name? One sin brought the honor of the name of God into question. When the world cannot distinguish us from those who don't know God, there's a problem. When there is not that distinction, there is then no power because there is no difference. And when there's no difference in the way we live and those who don't know Christ live, then we cheapen the gospel. Our lives should be a commentary on the greatness of God. I want the assembly to so honor the holiness of God and so to never trivialize the greatness of God that our lives are a commentary to the majesty, power, and greatness of God. We didn't get saved to only move out of the going to hell line so that we could get into the going to heaven line. No, he saved us to transform us so that his glory would be made known through us. Peter says we're not bought with perishable things like silver or gold, but we are bought with the precious blood of Jesus It is precious blood, infinitely precious. And may we as a local church realize the beauty and the preciousness of the blood of Jesus Christ until we would run from sin. We would never jeopardize the beauty, majesty of the precious shed blood of Jesus Christ. Hear my heart today. We're talking about the effects of sin. 
One sin, according to Joshua 7, warranted the swift and just wrath of God. It seemed quite severe to me as I read through it as Achan lost his life. And then I found myself going to a place that I think our minds can go and I was deeply convicted because my tendency was to say, well, this is Old Testament. I know about Nadab and Abihu when they offered strange fire, Old Testament story, they lost their life. I read the book of Acts and I find Ananias and Sapphira lying in the presence of God and lost their life. Have a tendency to talk about Old Testament stories, but you know today he's, he's a God of grace and we're living in the age of grace. And, and even though we reference the book of Acts, it still seems to be back then. And here's, here's the conviction that came to my heart. When I have that tendency to say, well, that's Old Testament, I am seeing sin in the way I see sin rather than the way God sees sin. If I start in my confronting of sin in that it almost sabotaged my future and it almost messed up my life or it did mess up my life, but I'm rebuilding, but I don't back up and start with first and foremost, sin is an affront to God. It hurts the heart of God. That God takes sin seriously. Then I may never make it to a true godly sorrow that's going to work genuine repentance. One sin, one sin. As I watched the news of the tsunami and lost lives, even this week, and then the earthquake and the horrible, horrific murder in Chicago, and everyone debating on how could that be and how could people just take an innocent life of an honor student my mind rakes back one sin all the way in the book of Genesis one sin and by the sin of the one man the whole world is condemned and we're walking in the lostness and fallenness and when we get saved we don't just get saved and handed a license to say now live any way that you want to but that under that majesty and umbrella of God's grace we would run from sin one sin, here's my last thought, and I thank God for it, leads us to the available mercy of God. The beauty of the scripture is that he delivers. God has massive wrath, but let me preach today. He also has massive mercy. Oh, the wideness of God's love and mercy. How rich. How strong, massively loving is our God. Just look at the cross where the, the full wrath of God seemed to be poured out on Jesus as, as the reign of wrath was poured out on Sodom and Gomorrah. God is bearing the full wrath of, of Almighty God. That was the penalty and the price of sin 
And there our Redeemer God, he bore our iniquity and he also bore the wrath of God and it seemed to raise an umbrella and we can come under the umbrella of grace as the wrath of God is averted and placed on him. Oh, the mercy of God. That's why the writer, looking at the cross, said, Hallelujah, what a Savior. How do you run to the mercy of God? Let me give you three, three thoughts on this running to the mercy of God. Number one is recognition. That's where we face the facts. It's the intellectual component. It's where I realize I have sinned. I own it. I recognize it. I want want to give you a verse back in Joshua 7, verse 19. Then Joshua said to Achan, My son, give glory to the Lord, the God of Israel, by telling the truth. Make your confession and tell me what you have done. Don't hide it from me. Oh, if the hidden, buried, private sin could be confessed at an altar of genuine repentance. Maybe we want to figure out culture, the culture of the sinner, and connect with with culture and try to get lost people drawn in. But perhaps we should start with the culture of the church. And that if, if, if sin could be dealt with within the body of Christ, then may we have a, a power in our witness. I'm not speaking perfection. I'm not speaking salvation by works. But I'm talking about no longer hiding behind a Sunday smile and going back into the, the tent of my weekly living knowing I've got sin in my life. But coming before an awesome, holy, merciful God and saying, I own What's happening in my life? I recognize it. I face the facts. Here's number two. Remorse. It's the emotional component. It's very important. This is where I feel the weight of what I've done. This is where my heart begins to shudder. This is where I say, God, I am so sorry. I, I can't believe I did it, God, but I did it. This emotional recognition, this emotional component, it, it goes way beyond getting caught. When I get caught, I am sorry, but please hear the emphasis on godly sorrow. A deep, godly sorrow. This is where I'm backing away from how it no doubt would have apprehended my future, sabotaged my destiny, affected all of those around me, and I'm first and foremost saying, before you have I sinned. And I'm grieved. I will not remake you in my image as if you don't care. But in your holiness, and yet in your mercy, I want to say, I have sinned. 
and your heart begins to shudder at the weight of the sin. And I think what happens is that when we confess in that attitude, we're confessing with the intent not to do it again. Versus at times this confession of, God, I'm sorry, but I'm probably going to do it again. It's a little girl. She was out on her tricycle on her driveway. And her dad said, now look, you stay in the driveway. Matter of fact, come out here. See this line right here, this crease in the concrete. You cross that line, you're in trouble. She crossed the line. He said, maybe you're not clear. Let me tell you, stay in the driveway. Don't cross the line. She crossed the line. He came out and said, look, if you cross that line again, I'm going to whip you. She said, well, you better whip me now because I'm going to cross that line. I'm talking about confessing at that level where the intent is not to do it again. Is, is this not what leads to restoration? You see, there is the recognition. There is that ownership, that emotional component of remorse. I think there's a place for godly sorrow. I don't want you to feel condemned by what I say. That can't help you. If you feel some conviction of the Holy Spirit, that leads to cleansing. This isn't about, I finally got him up the tree, so I'm going to shoot. Beat him over the head with the Bible. That's not it. I love you too much to do that. This is, if the Holy Spirit can take these words and work some godly Holy Spirit conviction to where your heart feel smitten by the mercy of God. God saying, I love you. There's better for you. That hurts me. That disconnects us. And you feel the wooing, the calling of the love of God. Then you surrender to God. And in that remorse, there is a, a genuine repentance to where like David, you move to restoration where he said in Psalm 51, 12, restore the joy of my salvation. The path to restoration is paved with deep, true, honest, maybe even painful confession of sin. Oh, how we need to be there as a church. When I would drive from my house to the church in Memphis, there was a certain place on the road where I'd look over and people were unlawfully using an area to dump trash. It was an ugly, unsightful situation. And one day we had one of those rare snows. And as the snow blanketed the area, it caught my attention as I drove by that area where I would normally see trash. It's just blanketed and it's as beautiful as every other place. And the verse comes to mind, though our sins be like crimson, they shall be white as snow. That's the mercy of God, which brings us into justification. And then we walk in dedication and lordship and freedom and we run from sin. We hate the sin and we're motivated not by wrath, but by grace, by grace. Paul says, by the grace of God, I am who I am and I do what I do. Oh, moving forward. And the one thing that'll stop us is sin. 
And sin still matters because it still matters to God. But there's still mercy for the sinner, for the imperfect, for those who fall short. He is faithful and just to forgive us, pick us up, cleanse us of all unrighteousness and bid us on our destiny in the full connection and grace and love of God, anointed to serve him with effectiveness if we are willing to take sin as seriously as he does. I would like to lead you in responding to the mercy of God. Would you close your eyes, please? We'll continue in the scripture tonight, but I just sense in my heart, the Lord bringing us to a pause to reflect. Selah in the Psalms, it was written there to pause and reflect. Is the Holy Spirit dealing with you this morning? Is there a hidden sin? Is there something within your life that you know is displeasing to God? And today you want to confess, recognize it. And maybe even already there's a remorse in your heart. It doesn't come from man. It comes from the love of God working in your heart by convicting power. And it's going to lead you to cleansing. You feel bad for what you've done. You feel guilty for what you've done. You hate what you've done. And you're ready to confess it and repent of it. And it is your intent not to do it anymore. And get on the road of restoration where he restores the joy of your salvation. Today you would say, Pastor, I need a Psalm 51 encounter where I can say, wash me and I shall be clean. Cleanse me and I'll be as white as snow. Lord, take not thy Holy Spirit from me, but restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. Oh God, create in me a clean heart.